So we're coming to our second sermon this morning in our brief, what I think is going to be a four-part series on the subject of gender. And this morning we're going to come to the, the main theme of what does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be a woman. Um, you, we, last week we talked about um, the, the general category of gender in, in the way that God created man and woman. He, he created us in his image, which means that men and women are equal in dignity and value because they are first and foremost human beings, and it's our human nature that is in the image of God, and therefore Christ can die for men and women because he shares a human nature, even though his particular gendered body was male. Um, But it's the human nature that is essential to our personhood. And then we discussed, but yet he created us distinctly as male and female. So what does that consist of? What is the essential or... or, um, you know, core issues surrounding manhood and womanhood. When we think about the distinctions and the ways that God created us at different times and in different ways with different responsibilities, how do, how do we think about that this morning? So that's the point of this morning's sermon is to explore those differences that we find in, in Genesis chapter 2, answering the questions, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What are men and women meant to be? What are men and women supposed to do? So three points this morning, we're going to mainly be in Genesis chapter 2 and a little bit in chapter 3. First point is the essence of manhood and womanhood. So we'll take those one at a time. I just want to hone in on what Genesis 2 teaches us about the essence, what's at the core, what's at the root of manhood and womanhood, and it doesn't have anything to do with roles. It has everything to do with how God created men and women. So look at chapter 2, verses 5 to 7. First of all, for the man, since he's mentioned first. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, skipping down to verse 6, a mist was going up from the land. Verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. So I want you to see that, first of all, the essence of manhood is found in how God created Adam. Man is made from the earth by the hand of God. Just like the rest of creation, man was formed before he was filled. He follows the same pattern that God has used in creation so far. You remember God created the skies and then he filled the skies and then he created the land and then he filled the land. He created the waters and then he filled the waters. So God formed on the first three days of creation. He filled on the last three days. And what we get here is the same activity, albeit slightly differently, in that God's not speaking man's creation into existence. He's getting his hands into the created matter and forming man out of it, and then breathing in to his body the breath of life. Then we see the creation of woman in in chapter 2, verses 21 and 23. I won't read those again, but we see where Adam is put to sleep, Eve is fashioned from the, a rib is extracted, Eve is fashioned from the rib of Adam, the place is closed up with flesh, and she is formed out of Adam's rib. So what's the point here? I want you to see that what's most fundamental and what's most essential to manhood and womanhood has to do with anatomy first. It has to do with the fact that God formed us as male and female. So my point is that in our, in our current cultural moment, this is a significant point because 
Both Adam and Eve are formed by God out of the stuff of creation, and that created stuff is essential to their genders. My point is that gender, including the essence of manhood and womanhood, is in being created by God and is not something for us to discover later on. Now, this is significant because males are males and females are females because of our created bodies, our anatomy. Maleness and femaleness has, is not performative. It's not something we first do because they haven't done anything yet and they've already been declared male and female. So that's my point. The essence of it has to do with God's creative activity in forming us in His image as male and female before we ever do anything. And we're already called male and female before we ever do anything. It's not something anyone can just act out. Someone cannot perform as a man or a woman and therefore be a man or a woman. Womanhood and manhood is something woven into us by divine design, not something we actualize or live out through our personal preferences. Our male parts, structurally, are different from a female's parts. A female's parts are different structurally from a male's parts. Men's size and strength and aggression and height and speed and lung and heart capacity are all built structurally by God by design. Women are generally smaller, have less testosterone, more estrogen, more white blood cells, greater pain sensitivity, except when pregnant, more acute pain tolerance, which is why a man cold is a real thing, more gray matter in their brains, are naturally more empathetic, nurturing, and developing human life within their own bodies. There are structural, anatomical, logical, anatomy issues here that we're talking about. And this means that what is the, of the essence of manhood and womanhood is creation, male and female. That's of the essence of manhood and womanhood. So therefore, a trans man is not a man, full stop. A trans woman is not a woman, full stop. A trans man is a female who feels like a man and so is performing what they think of as maleness. A trans life is a performative response to an inner distress. And that inner distress is real and requires the compassion of us. We'll look at more what that looks like near the end of the sermon. But I want you to see and appreciate that the essence of manhood and womanhood are not first connected to what we do, but to who we are, to who God has made us to be as male and female. And this is important because even in the church, we can make the mistake of viewing manhood first as marked or womanhood first as marked by what men or women do instead of who they are as male and female created by God. What do I mean by that? Well, understanding the essence of manhood and womanhood as created by God in His image prevents us from going beyond Scripture in our understanding of biblical masculinity and biblical femininity. There is no cultural stereotype that you have to align perfectly with in order to be a boy or a girl. While culture does shape our understanding of the ways that gender is appropriately expressed, and the Bible acknowledges that reality, and it will be different in different cultures, that does not mean that culture alone determines all the valid and biblical expressions of manhood and womanhood. We must let Scripture define masculinity and femininity, not culture. We must be careful to not go beyond what is written 
as we can do a lot of damage to young men and women by equating cultural stereotypes with biblical requirements. We must not overly narrow the biblical expressions of manhood and womanhood, and indeed we must not overly broaden it because there are a lot of legitimate cultural variations that should impact the way we think about it. For instance, I was first struck by some of these cultural variations in a stronger way when um, Jonathan Christman and I went to India for the for my first and only time, his several times, but uh, back in 2005. And when we were there, it was very, very common for the men, especially the pastors we were interacting with, as a gesture of friendship, when you were standing there or sitting there with them, talking to them, to hold hands. Very common. And they would put their hand out, or they would just grab your hand and just kind of hold it as you're standing there or sitting there. Now, that made my palms a little sweaty. But that's only because I'm not used to holding hands with a man, not because that is, but in our culture, that's an essentially feminine expression of care, not an especially masculine one, but there's nothing in the Bible about that. So we have to be careful when we start assigning male-female actions when it's just a human action that is reflected differently in different cultures by males and females. It's a human, it's a human action to touch another human in appropriate ways. Culture, oftentimes, the Bible does have some ways to say that we shouldn't touch each other, but the Bible largely gives, gives cultures freedom to establish the appropriateness of those sorts of things in different cultures. For instance, if we were to go to Scotland now, we would see men, high-ranking men, manly men, wearing dresses. And you know what a Scotsman wears under his kilt, right? His shoes. So we need to be careful here in how we think through this. Do we believe that real men, all real men, wear Stetson hats and drive pickup trucks and can fix anything and hunt and fish and know everything about baseball? Is that essential to biblical manhood? Well, if that's the standard of manliness, then there are men, men, some of the godliest men I know are not men. I want to encourage the young men in this room who don't feel like you fit the cultural stereotypes for manhood. I'm one of you. I love to read. I'm a lover of the great indoors. And I have joked repeatedly with our congregation that because I know so little about sports, anytime I successfully use a sports illustration in a sermon, an angel gets its wings. So I want you to know that you are every bit as much of a male, a boy, a man, as the jock, the soldier, and the warrior, or the hunter. Because your maleness isn't first rooted in your interests, it's in your nature as created by God. A boy is no less a boy because he might enjoy fashion or dressing more nicely than some boys. Some boys could learn to dress a little more nicely. Or if he's into drama. A girl is no less a girl if she particularly enjoys sports or activities or trucks or hates pink. We need to be done with cultural stereotypes and tether our thinking to the Bible. Otherwise, we undermine the image of God and we support the cultural narrative surrounding gender. We drive people away from God with such thinkings and right into the arms, the waiting arms of a secular culture who is pleased to affirm them in those ways. There can be a wide range of variables in which each gender can be expressed. Not all boys like hunting, not all girls like shopping. These are neither biblical nor intrinsic markers of gender. So fabricated lists of masculine and feminine traits can become pharisaical 
and run the risk of excluding godly masculine men and godly feminine women. There is a diversity, and we need to pay attention to this as we read our Bibles in the biblical portrayal of the sexes. There are women in the Bible who are cooks and seamstresses, yes, but they also rebuild cities, judge Israel, deal in real estate, run businesses, and kill God's enemies. And men in the Bible, yes, they're warriors and husbands, but they're also shepherds and farmers and metal workers and musicians and cooks and gentle and sensitive and who weep and who embrace and fall upon other men. This diversity does not nullify or contradict the different roles and responsibilities of men and women in marriage and ministry that we'll get into in the coming weeks, but it, but it does warn us against having rigid stereotypes. So that's the first point, the essence of manhood and womanhood. Secondly, the exercise of manhood and womanhood. How is this essence lived out practically in the world? Well, we're told in two ways in Genesis chapter 2, one for the man, one for the woman. Notice first of all for the man in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. That even breaks out one of our common cultural stereotypes. We typically think gardening or being you know, interested in gardening is more of a feminine uh, characteristic in some ways. Farming would be more masculine, but maybe gardening would be more. But here we have a man created for a garden and a garden created for a man. And we see the way in which God intends him to exercise his biblical manhood revealed in two places in the text. First of all, in verse 5, we read that there was no man to work the ground. No man to work the ground. And then verse 15 touches on the heart of what the man is supposed to do when we read the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So the exercise of Adam's responsibility before God was to work and keep the garden. He created a garden for the man and the man for the garden to work it and to keep it. So he essentially says to the man, as my image, do what I have done. I created a garden and I created you and put it in it. Now you do that. I want you to create image bearers and I want you to work the garden. So what does it mean to work and to keep? I think it means to take responsibility for the garden in terms of its care and its cultivation. Protect it, bring it to life, make it flourish. Bring out all the potentialities that I have put in creation and develop it and harness it for my glory. So we see that it was Adam's responsibility to cultivate the garden. The word work means to tend to something, to help it flourish. And we see this in God's activity in creating the garden in verse 9. God says, and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. See, God's a gardener. He's, he's, he's causing the earth to flourish. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So notice the contrast in verses 5 and 6 with verse 9. God brought life to the arid landscape, and in the same way, he called the man to do that. He was to tend the garden and help it to flourish. God gave Adam the job of looking after the garden and the things within it. And I believe that looking after our own gardens, so to speak, metaphorically, remains a core part of a masculine identity. And we all implicitly know it. God created men to protect and bring life and flourishing. We are called to create space where vulnerable things can thrive. 
Species that couldn't survive in the wilderness are given an opportunity in the garden to bloom beautifully under Adam's care. We are at our best, men, when we champion the weak and the vulnerable and provide space for them to grow and flourish. We are at our best when we use whatever strength we have to safeguard the innocent and provide a place for people to thrive. If a man is not gentle and able to do this, he isn't qualified to be a biblical elder. 1 Timothy 3.3 Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, not a feminine trait. Biblical masculinity is gentle masculinity. God said, or Paul said that his behavior among the Thessalonian church was like that of a nursing mother laboring to see Christ formed in them as he provided space for them to grow and flourish under the word. So Adam was not only to, to, to cultivate the garden in that way, but he was also to keep the garden, that is guard it and protect it. We see this call in the words the Lord commands to Adam to, to keep the garden, to, to, to protect it to take the garden, work it, cause it to flourish and expand and team with life and then protect it from anything that might spoil it. Hence, true masculinity is not displayed in flexing our muscles or fixing stuff or achieving sexual conquests. Rather, true masculinity is displayed in being humble, responsible, dedicated keepers of the gardens God has given to us. If you notice, the Garden of Eden was not only the place where Adam worked, it was also the place where he lived and the place where he worshipped. It was his job, his home, and his church, all at the same time. So we have all three aspects of human life, and the man is responsible in those areas to cultivate all of it and to care for all of it. So what does that mean? It means, brothers, if you have a wife, you tend to her flourishing. You tend to her life. You tend to her well-being. You tend to her care, and you help her grow. And if you have children, you expend yourself to help them grow. You develop them. You shape them. You influence them in such a way that they flourish. See, this is a far different view of headship than exists in many places because they misunderstanding what the purpose of leadership is. Leadership is not getting people to do what you tell them to do. Leadership is leading in such a way that other people are flourishing all around you. A bad leader is marked by the stench of death in all of his relationships. Like you get around people and they wither under him. They don't flourish, they wither and die. So to be a keeper of the garden means that in our homes, in our churches, men are called to help people under their care, wives, children, if we have them. We don't have to have them. Jesus didn't have them, was fully a man, fully human. But we still invest our lives, even as single men, in helping other people grow and flourish and thrive in the mission of God where we protect both our home and our church from anything that might spoil them. What about the woman? Well, we read in verses 18 to 20 the following. Then the Lord said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And so we get this language of helper, but it's in the context of being presented with a problem that the creation of the woman was designed to solve. While all of creation was good, and even very good according to God's assessment, the one thing that was not good was that the man should be alone. Now notice what it does not say. It does not say that it was not good that the man should be lonely. He's not lonely. He's walking with God in the garden, surrounded and teeming with animal life. He was walking with God. The aloneness is 
in the fact that he had been given a task, as he's going to be a ta- given a task, that would require help for him to complete. He had already been introduced to that task by the animals being paraded in front of him and God telling him, name these. And so he's recognizing, okay, part of my responsibility is to like rule and reign and name and, and, and exercise dominion over this world that God has created. And, and, and I'm noticing that they're in pairs and, and I'm noticing that I don't have one of those. And, and then he's also talked to me about being fruitful and multiplying and I have no idea how to do that by myself. So his task was to work and to keep the garden and the point is he needs help to do it. Adam's problem is not first loneliness, although there is a relational component here. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. There is a relational component to it. But the problem is Adam is incompetent in the sense not that he's not gifted to do all that God gave him to do. He just can't do it without a helper. So Adam has all the abilities that God intends for him to have, but he's not able to accomplish the responsibilities that God has given him without woman. He can't do it all by himself. So God sets out to rectify the problem with the creation of woman. And God creates a helper that's corresponding to his need, who is a fit for him in accomplishing the task that the Lord has given to humanity to be fruitful and multiply and exercise dominion in the earth. So we're told twice in verses 18 and verse 20 that the exercise of womanhood is in helping the man to fulfill the mandate and mission that God gave to humanity. See, shaping and ruling the world is a team project that requires both genders. The work is cooperative and collaborative. The calling of helper is not in any way demeaning for women. It is underscoring that that the woman is essential, not optional, central, not marginal, in her importance, value, and worth to the mission of God. Additionally, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, the term helper is used of God in numerous places in the Old Testament, and of the 17 or so times that I counted of this word use of help, 11 of them are used to refer to God himself. So over half of the terms of the, of the use of the term helper that's described Eve here is used of God. So just as it is God-like for Adam to cultivate and care for the garden, so it is God-like for Eve to help Adam cultivate and care for the garden. So just like we must not emphasize cultivation over care or care over cultivation for men, so we must not misunderstand the role of woman as helper. Helper does not mean inferior. Helper means necessary complement. Helper does not mean that women never take initiative. Helper does not mean that women never lead in any way whatsoever. Consider Deborah or Miriam, who are both affirmed for their righteous initiative. Consider Abigail in 2 Samuel 25 as she takes initiative to save herself and her household. Consider Jochebed's initiative in saving Moses at birth and Zipporah's initiative in saving Moses from death. Consider Ruth's initiative to Boaz. Consider the initiative of the Proverbs 31 woman. Consider the Syrophoenician woman who refused to be sent away by Jesus and her initiative. Consider Phoebe, the apostolic assistant to Paul, whom Paul called a worthy worker who's to receive honor among the saints. Why the Bible calls husbands to sacrificially lead their families and qualified men to be elders, it doesn't present all leadership and initiative as an exclusively masculine characteristic in the Bible. 
We also see women providing for their households in the Bible. Ruth worked to provide for herself and Naomi by gleaning in the fields for grain. Rachel, Jacob's wife, was a shepherdess and gave, that, give that, and, uh, that her, and gave to her father Laban and had sons as well as daughters. She wasn't merely working in the herds by default. Moses' wife, Zipporah, also cared for the livestock in their family along with her sisters. And the Proverbs 31 woman was a ready provider for her family. Lydia, through whose network of relationships the Philippian church was planted, was a seller of purple cloth. Dorcas provided for the needs of the widow in Joppa. Priscilla, Aquila's wife, worked alongside her husband in tent making. We also see the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings provide for Elisha and the women who assisted Jesus' ministry out of their private means in Luke 8 and the women like Nympha who hosted church meetings in their homes. Women provide as well. We also see women protect others in the Bible. Think of the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, who protected the baby boys from Pharaoh's order to kill them. Think of Jochebed and Miriam, protecting Moses and later Zipporah. Esther, leading and protecting the people of Israel from being killed. Rahab, protecting her family and the Jewish spies. And Mephibosheth's nurse, protecting him after Saul and Jonathan died. Leading, initiating, providing, protecting in all contexts and in every way is not a uniquely masculine characteristic according to the Bible, but should be placed in categories of equality in the image of God rather than uniqueness of gender. So while not narrowing the role of helper, we must not also demean the way that the role of helper is most commonly carried out and commonly expressed across human history. Remember that the very next verse indicates that marriage will be the primary context, though not exclusive context, where many women, though not all, will live out this helper role by nurturing children alongside their husband and tending to the garden of their households. This does not mean a woman needs to be married to be fully a woman. As we've already said in the first point, womanhood is biological and creational first. Just as Jesus did not need to be married to ha and have children to be fully human and fully a man, neither do all women or all men for that matter. But for women who do marry, their help will largely, though not exclusively, be expressed in the context of marriage and family. And this is wonderful and biblical. And it's, it's, it's almost marginalized in our culture as though that's something to be looked down on. And it isn't. Womanhood that is expressed in marriage and parenting is a beautiful picture of the helper role of Genesis 2. It's not the only role that Genesis 2 can be expressed, but it is the, the context in which God gives it here in Genesis 2. Thirdly, having looked at the essence of womanhood, manhood and womanhood as anatomy and being fashioned by God, created by Him, and then the specific exercise of it in cultivating and keeping the garden as a primary responsible leader and a helper, the erosion of manhood and womanhood is our third point. And we want to talk about how the fall breaks this down. So look at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now I hope I don't, I'm not going to spend too much time just reviewing the narrative of the fall, but We'll step back. We go in immediately into chapter 3. Serpent comes in the garden and starts speaking to Eve. Now, that, the fact that he was in the garden is not necessarily an awful prospect at first, but the fact that he's beginning to speak things that are untrue of God is something that Adam and Eve should have been on the watch for, and Adam especially should have been on the watch for as the protector of the garden. 
and he was allowing it to be spoiled by the introduction of the words and the temptations of the serpent to his wife. And so they eventually, both of them, eat the, from the fruit of the tree. They're both judged by God. Interestingly, they're judged corresponding to their various responsibilities. So Eve is judged in terms of childbirth, and Adam is judged in terms of the work of the ground to work and keep. So again, there's separate judgments corresponding to how God intended their masculinity and femininity to be expressed in the garden. And so they both sin, they're both judged, they both refuse to heed God's word and trust God's word, and as a result, sin is introduced into the world. But I want you to notice the very first thing that happens when they sin. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of both were opened, knowing good and evil, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice, the first thing that happens as a result of sin is they recognize something shameful about gender. They, now, they've been looking at each other's parts. They know what the different parts are. But they haven't, there's no shame associated with it. But now, all of a sudden, there's this internal sense of shame that descends on the man and woman. Well, they're guilty, and that's producing the shame for sure. But it's also associated with their nakedness. Just as they were naked and unashamed in the creation, so with the entrance of sin into the world, they not only experience a circumstantial judgment of God on their labor, but also a psychological judgment in their thinking. And this, friends, explains all manner of gender-related products of the fall, gender dysphoria and transgenderism among them. While these are psychological categories, they all stem from the alienation we experience in our sin at the fall, an alienation that is felt within by the shame we are born into as sinners in union with Adam. We live in a fallen world. There are consequences of the disruption of creation that's caused by human sin. Have you ever read Romans 8 and considered its effect that Paul chooses to, to recognize the effect of the fall on our bodies? He says in Romans 8, 20-23, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, our bodies groan along with the rest of creation. And he's talking to Christians. How much more those who are outside of Christ do their bodies groan with frustration and futility and difficulty? Our bodies are subjected to the same futility as the rest of the cursed creation. For some, this means that they do not feel at home in the bodies that they have. Some experience incongruence between their bodily sex and their felt identity in terms of gender. And I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that Scripture is not silent 
on rare conditions where a person may be born with ambiguity in their sex characteristics or struggles with their sexuality in these ways. 2 Kings 9, Esther chapter 2, Isaiah 56, Acts 8 all speak of a category of eunuchs. Eunuchs were castrated males. Now, these phenomena do not indicate a third sex or multiple genders, as even science and biology will largely reveal that even people who are born with an intersex condition, as rare as it is, puberty will often unfold the God-imprinted design of gender in the person. But I want you to feel and understand that Jesus is neither ignorant nor unwilling to address the complexities that often accompany the body, bodily suffering we experience under the fall. Matthew 19, 12, Jesus speaks directly to the situation of eunuchs when he says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. They had nothing to do with it. They were born as a result of the fall and its effects on pregnancy, born into the world in the condition of not having sexual organs as a male. And there are eunuchs, Jesus says, who have been made eunuchs by men. Whether that's through torture or some other condition thrust upon them. And there are eunuchs, notice, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't think he's talking here primarily. He's using eunuchs in that sense as those who have uh, refused to engage in any kind of sexual activity and live their lives in celibacy. And then Jesus says, let the one who's able to receive this receive it. Which is why Paul picks up in, I think, 1 Corinthians 7, talks about people who are able to be single should receive that and live it. And if they aren't, they don't want to be single, but God has called them to be that situation by not providing a spouse to them, then they can, by God's grace, live up and live out their uh, calling and responsibilities. So here Jesus speaks to eunuchs who had nothing to do with their condition. It was by birth. Others who had this condition thrust upon them by men and others who did it to themselves. Regardless of what we make of all this, it's clear that Jesus isn't unaware of those whose biological reality is painful and confusing. That's the point. He gets it. He sees it. He expects it to be the case for some people in a broken and fallen world. And at the same time, Jesus affirms both the, normative, the normativity of the male-female binary and the givenness of heterosexual marriage. When he says in Matthew 19, earlier in the chapter, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He affirms the gender binary. And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He affirms the creation normativity of heterosexual marriage. So what would Jesus think about transgenderism today? We don't have to guess. What would Jesus think about marriage today? We don't have to guess. He affirms creation. He affirms Genesis 1 and 2. He affirms what God did in the beginning as normative for all of life. Therefore, anyone trying to follow Jesus outside of those givens, whether by baptizing a transgender identity into discipleship or claiming gay marriage can be a legitimate marriage under Christ, is following a different Jesus from the real one. And even while living in a post-Genesis 3 world, God nevertheless affirms the created reality of Genesis 1. In Genesis 5, after the fall, 
It's already happened. The judgment has come. The shame has entered the world. Genesis 5, 1 and 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. It's affirmed after the fall as the normative understanding for humanity down through the centuries. So true freedom then, brothers and sisters, is not found in recreating ourselves according to our feelings. True freedom is found in striving to be who God has made us to be, as difficult as that may be for some people. Our culture says that your psychology is your sexual identity, so let your body be conformed to it. God says your body is your sexual identity, so let your mind be conformed to it. The body, the, the culture has taken the opposite take on gender in terms of how we think about ourselves. The culture says the mind is right, the body is wrong. God says the body's right, the mind is wrong. God says your body is crucial to your sexual identity, so let your mind be conformed to that. There will be a price to pay. There will be a cross to bear. Jesus doesn't promise that all of our suffering will be alleviated in this life, but he does promise a new creation. And interestingly enough, he promises a unique reward for eunuchs who follow him in the midst of such conditions. Have you read this verse in Isaiah 56? Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, that is those who follow me, who, who pledge their allegiance to the Lord and follow him, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house. This is so sweet of our God. Listen to this. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. What name is better than being called a son or daughter of God? I don't know. But he says, I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. God notices God notices the price they're willing to pay for him, even if they struggle all their whole lives with feeling like they're two different people. And God will reward them. And in a way that is inexpressible and glorious. God pays attention to our sufferings. All that he... So we, we read, Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall forever be with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored, be still, my soul, your Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. And if he takes away by his own sovereign providence and his own decisions regarding how the fall affects each of our lives, which it all affects many of our, all of our lives in various different ways, and you could, we could all stand up and say, boy, I wish the fall didn't affect me this way. I wish God hadn't, man, the struggle that I feel like I've had my whole life. Am I com and comparing that to, a, to, a, to an identity struggle that a transgender uh, neighbor might have? No, I'm not comparing it to that. But I am saying that it's not, in that sense, unusual. It's to be expected, and Jesus is enough. Even if the person's struggles are never alleviated in this life and they have to bear that cross their entire life, they will honor the Lord Jesus. They will find joy that, they, that he only discloses 
in certain ways to certain Christians who struggle in certain ways, and they, and they will know everlasting fullness of joy and a name better than sons, of daughters, than sons and daughters when they arrive in heaven trusting in Christ. So our God is good. The fall is bad. The fall affects us in lots of different ways. And if you're here this morning and you're currently struggling, not necessarily with any of the issues we've talked about, but you recognize I've sinned. I've lived in disobedience to God. Is there any hope for me? Yes. Because right in the middle of that Genesis 3 narrative, there's a promise that there would be a seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And that seed of the woman has already come has already lived, has already died, has already risen from the dead, and is already seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning, giving salvation to all those who call on him. And if you're here this morning, call upon the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for its clarity, for the goodness that comes into our minds when we think and reflect on the goodness of your design. Lord, we acknowledge the fall. We acknowledge the ways our sin in Adam has broken your creation, has affected our bodies, has affected the way we think and feel. And we thank you that our Lord Jesus is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows us. He knows the realities in which we lived. He entered into those realities and he bore in his body the depths of judgment and punishment for sin that those who are in Christ will never know. So thank you for your love, Lord Jesus. Would you move in our lives and the lives of friends and neighbors and family in our own culture who struggle in these ways? And may they find Christ to be an all-sufficient Savior for them, just as he is an all-sufficient Savior for all kinds of sinners who come to him for all different sins and all different struggles. And we thank you that he promises rest to all those who come to him weary and heavy laden. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.